0: City of Baghdad, at the height of the Golden Age of the Abbasid Caliphate, some of the greatest minds of the Islamic Empire are squaring off against their opponents from Christian, Jewish, and Manichaean backgrounds to debate the very fundamentals of their faith. Here, some of the greatest scholars. In the Muslim Empire at the time are using the rules of logic and reason handed down from the Greeks to prove that their faith is not only true because of the revelation from God but because the very laws of logic of what is possible of what is reasonable dictate that it must be so and their opponents must be wrong it's one of the boldest Intellectual endeavors undertaken, and it's happening at the time of this great intellectual flourishing in Baghdad. This is just a piece of classical Islamic theology, and that is our subject today. So stay tuned. talk about the development of classical Islamic thought, it can get a bit confusing. And that is because, going back to my favorite point, as you know, Islam at the time of the Golden Age is not just what we would consider a religion, but it's a huge empire. An empire that considers itself the domain of Islam or Dar al-Islam. So, we have specialists in Islamic law, we have theology, we have philosophy, we have natural sciences, we have what we would later call psychology, astrology, and so on. But all of these work under the unifying view of Islam. So, within this large domain, we have some people working on questions like what Islam says about marriage, and divorce, and adultery, and so on. We have some people addressing abstract questions like the nature of good and evil, or how does God allow suffering, things we in the West would lump under the heading of theology. We have others writing about the nature of the universe and natural phenomena, like why does God move the stars in certain patterns, and how does that affect weather on earth, and so on. But of course, to cite another one of my favorite points, you know there's going to be a lot of overlap between these various different strains of thought and there's going to be some conflict. So the image of a monolithic Islam with one doctrine in unity of opinion on all its ideas, that's really a myth. It never existed. Critics tend to assume that Islam's golden age was all liberal philosophy and tolerance and rationalism and really great science, then at some point it all switched to hardline Islamic law and tradition. The scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson has a popular speech on YouTube, which has been seen thousands of times, where he lays out this argument. But that really reflects selected bits of Islamic history, that the West has chosen to focus on at various times, and it produces a really nice narrative that fits into our Western point of view. The fact is that all these different intellectual trends were ongoing, often vying for power and support, but they all went on in dynamic relationships. Now, because these things can get a bit confusing to keep them all straight We've made a hopefully helpful timeline, a chart, that you'll find on the website. Uh, If you go to the site, you'll look on the side where there are links, and there's a link to a timeline. And what I've tried to do here is put all these different trends alongside each other in terms of the chronology so you can get an idea of what's happening when. And because it's somewhat confusing, we've talked about the development of Hadith, we've talked about the development of the schools of law, uh, the translation movement, and so forth, but there's time differences between them. So you can get an idea of where to place these different thinkers and understand how they're interacting and essentially who's competing with whom. In the last episode, we traced the beginnings of Islamic law and the sciences that were necessary to support it. The study of Hadith, the Prophet's traditions, the biographies of the companions, and so forth. At the same time, there were many schools of Islamic theology were developing. So we're going to have to make a distinction here between these different areas, uh, particularly because the Islamic empire is so large and it has so many different scholars in it. There are a lot of people working on different fields, but all of which are related to the religion of Islam. So what we would call theology in the West, that is the study of beliefs about God and things divine, this develops pretty early in Islam, and it's used to clarify and interpret the Quran. As we've mentioned, the Quran is pretty short, it's about as long as the New Testament is, and it leaves a lot of questions. Another big impetus for the study of theology is the fact that Islam conquered territory that already had some of the greatest schools in it and some religions with strong theologies of their own. So some of the greatest Christian theologians, for example, had lived in North Africa. So Muslims also found themselves in debate with Christian and Jewish intellectuals about their beliefs. As we've pointed out in earlier episodes, some of the leading officials and scientists in the early Muslim empire were Christians and Jews, and a number of them Persians like Manichaeans or Zoroastrians and so forth. And they attended the social gatherings that went on, and they got into lively discussions with Muslim scholars and philosophers. But it's amazing just to pause and think about the time that we're talking about. We're talking about the 700s, 800s, 900s A.D., and we have this cosmopolitan atmosphere where some of your top officials are from many different religions, and they can get together and debate on their faiths. Uh, If we looked at Europe, the equivalent to debating your faith would be being tortured until you agree to what the Church says. Well... The Muslims didn't refer to this as theology. They don't really have a word for that. And to some extent, it is not the same as Christian theology. The Arabic word for what we're going to talk about today is kalam. And you'll find a lot of websites telling you that kalam, quote, literally means a whole lot of things that it doesn't actually mean. The word simply means speech. It's the same word we use for someone's spoken words today. Uh, The name for someone who practices this is mutakellam. And again, you will see this, quote, literally translated to mean all kinds of things, uh, which it doesn't. So you have to be sort of careful when you're looking at your sources. Um, Mutakellam is someone who is speaking or talking. But what they're talking about here specifically is someone who is using verbal argument and explanation to refute the arguments of skeptics or to clarify for believers. And one of the key points about kalam is it's always defensive and in relation to a question. Someone asks, how can this be so? How can God allow suffering? How can God allow people to go to hell? And then you answer the question like that. Okay, So it's different than, say, preaching. We have a similar term in English that comes from Greek, of course, which is apologetics, uh, you may be familiar with, but what the Motokalamin end up doing is actually it's much wider than just apologetics. And you see some of the, an example of something similar to this today. If you go on to YouTube, for example, you can see all these debates between atheists and religious people about, is there a God? And and the idea of this is that the religious person has to go into this debate and obviously can't use the same arguments and bases that they would use when they're preaching at a church. I mean, they can't say, yes, there is a God because the Bible tells us so, and we believe it, and it's faith. This is an idea where, okay, the religious person is going to debate this atheist based on logic, and based on, to some extent, science and observation. So on the one hand, you have the people who are working on laws, on what you can and cannot do, what you should do, what's the correct way to pray, what's the correct way to fast. Then there's the other side of this, which is looking at ideas dealing with God, like questions about, you know, what is the nature of God? Uh, What do we mean when we talk about God's mercy? This is arguing the principles, the beliefs, based on logic. And there's a much greater sense in Kalam that you're talking to people of other religions, which tends to create some friction between the muta the practitioners of this theology, and the experts in Islamic law. And This is not by coincidence. The same people who are doing this talking to people of other religions, remember we said that Jews and Christians were heavily represented in the sciences, and so it's the same sort of community of people who are doing science. So welcome back. So Islamic theology begins with the very first generations, one of the first great figures that we know of was Hassan al-Basri, who was born 10 years after the death of the prophets. Well, al-Basri was an enormously popular preacher and leader. He was a respected interpreter of the Quran. He was a great teacher and preacher. It said that some 10,000 people converted to Islam based on his preaching. But he's best known for his practice of self-denial, something like what we think of what monks do, where they deny themselves and they deny their flesh and live a very humble sort of mystic life of communion with God. He's also seen as one of the earliest mutakallimun. So just give a little context here. This is during the Umayyad Caliphate. This is before the schools of law have really formed, and this is before the translation movement and Beit al-Hikmah, which, as you know, begin in the Abbasid period. So as you might remember, the Umayyads were not always popular. In fact, it was felt that they seized the caliphate by power. So they were powerful, they had a lot of resistance and a lot of rebellion, because they had a lot of resistance, Hassan al-Basri's preaching about a humble lifestyle, about rejecting luxury, about rejecting the trappings of this world of power, of wealth, and so forth, that didn't make him too popular with the Umayyads. But the big question of the day which Hassan al-Basri got involved in, and it continues to be a big question, is this idea of free will versus predestination. Meaning, do humans have free will to choose their actions, or has God preordained everything? Well, this was the first real theological debate in Islam. And like most theological questions, it's one of those that you're going to be in trouble no matter which way you answer. You see, if you say everything's predetermined, then essentially you're saying God's responsible for a lot of evil stuff, and then I can pretty much do whatever I want because it was predetermined, and if I commit a crime, I didn't have any choice in the matter. So that's really not going to be too acceptable. But if we say everything is free will, then now we have God's power and his control is limited. How can he be omniscient and omnipotent when humans have free will? Well, this dilemma reflects one of the main tensions of doing theology. Because if you're a traditionalist or a regular preacher, you can avoid this trap, and you can just say that God's nature is something we can't fully understand. This is why God gives us revelations. This is why we have miracles like the Quran and the Prophet, because we we frankly can't understand everything that God does, but if you're going to rely on rationalism and logic and argumentation, well, obviously you can't, you can't do that. I mean, you can't say something's a fuzzy black box and we don't get it. So you have to have some sort of explanation and you have to argue away the problems. This will be a tension throughout the whole history of what we're calling theology or Islamic kalam. On the one side, the mutta kalamun Yeah, they have to do battle with the Christians, the Jews, the people of the other religions, and try and outwit them. But on the other side, they have to overcome resistance from others in Islam who say, look, you shouldn't be doing this. Trying to think that your grasp of reason and logic is so good that you can explain everything that God does, that's, that's hubris, that's arrogance, and you shouldn't even be messing with it. And this is going to be a constant tension, I mean really up until today, but certainly through this period of the Golden Age. Anyway, Hassan al-Basri becomes associated with really what we call the first school of theology in Islam. And school here means a very loose grouping of people who agree on some idea. But anyway, this school is known as the Qadariya, and they are arguing for the free will side. Now, the name in Arabic is a bit tricky, and I'll tell you, you can go to three different philosophy books and get three different answers about what that name means. It's tricky because the word Qadar actually means fate, and that's exactly what these people were arguing against. But that word also comes from the Arabic root meaning ability. And in, in fact, in colloquial Arabic, qadr, or it's often the the "qaf," the initial letter is is elided and it's called "adar," means to be able to do something. So that refers to free will. And again, you will find different explanations about what, which one of those this name actually refers to. But anyway, anyway, just realize that the Qadariya are people who are against the idea of fate. They believe in free will. Now, the opposite side is the side, of course, that believes in predestination or God controlling everything. A group called the Jahmites, which are named after Jahm ibn Safwan, which didn't last that long as a a group, or the word Jabirites, and jabber means something is forced, is necessary, I- inevitable. And so this is the group that believes in the uh, inevitability of our actions, of essentially predestination. Uh, but the support for predestination also came in general from the traditionalist and from popular opinion. And the reason for this is that just it, typically in Arab culture, the idea of our uh, fate being predestined was a very popular idea even before Islam. So we have these two sides. Now, you might think this is just an academic debate, but what we have to remember is anytime we talk about the exchange of ideas, it's a business of power, it's a business of influencing popular opinion, of influencing the elite, and so there's some big stakes at hand. This is never just a simple academic debate. Remember, the Umayyads, who were strong but faced a lot of internal opposition, were not too happy with the Qadariyya. They liked the idea of predestination much better. And why is that? Well, if everything is predestined, then you should just accept the people that end up in power, because obviously God allowed them to take power. Both Christian and Islamic tradition are full of this idea of be obedient to who's ever in power, no matter how they act, because it's God's will. I mean, this is throughout the New Testament of the Bible, and we see this uh, even in politics today, right? Uh, Whenever one party's candidate is in power, they say it's the duty of everyone to follow this person, whether you like them or not, because it's God's will. When the other party's in power, then you say it's our duty to rebel against injustice. So with the the Umayyads, uh, the idea of free choice, that you have to choose whether to support good or oppose evil, this sounded a lot like inciting resistance. And in fact, this sort of preaching was used as a code for uh, generating resistance against the Umayyads. And the uh, Umayyads would eventually be overthrown by the Abbasids. And so for a brief period of time, the free will side was actually more popular with the government because the government had just done a revolution. And you remember how the Abbasids said they were coming in and cleaning up and getting rid of the excesses of the Umayyads. Remember all the Abbasid caliphs would take on these titles like al-Ma'mun. Haruna rashid these names that showed how rightly guided they were. Anyway, Hassan al-Basri uh, doesn't last that long, but it's from his group that comes the most important of the Kalam groups of the Golden Age, and the one we're going to be talking about the most, and this is probably the one you'll hear thrown out the most as typical of Golden Age theology, and this is the Mutazilites. And so we've had a lot of names here. If there's one name to remember from this episode, it would be that one, the Mutazilites or Mutaziliya. Well, the Mutazilites are quite controversial and quite polarizing. They would become the official creed of the Abbasid Empire to such an extent uh, anyone who didn't agree with the creed was thrown in jail and tortured. But then, not too long afterwards, they would become heretics And many Muslims still today consider them to be heretics. Although for other people, uh, particularly those who prize rationalism and free thought, the Mutazilites become heroes. They become like these martyrs. And there is even a strong Mutazilite movement today, which, I mean, cherry-picks the best stuff from the old one, to be realistic. But this gives you an idea of the kind of controversy we're talking about. Well, the word comes from itazala in Arabic, which means to withdraw, and it refers to a member of al Basri's circle, Wasil ibn Attah, who was the first, who left al Basri's group because of a dispute over whether sinners became infidels or unbelievers or not. And this is um, kind of a minor point. We're not going to go into a lot of detail. But the idea is Wasil withdrew from al-Basri's circle. Wasil is seen as the founder of Mutaziliyyah. Despite this withdrawing, uh, most historians consider the mutazalites to be a continuation of the Qadariyah. And this is because they believe very strongly in free will. The Mutazilites are often referred to as rationalists, and we do see an increasing use of classical logic and reasoning and argumentation in their ideas. Now remember, the translation movement is just getting going at this time. We're talking right about the time of the Abbasid Revolution in the founding of the Abbasid Caliphate. It begins a little bit before that. And this is when more and more Greek works were being introduced. So the idea of Greek rationalism, Greek logic, and that's the way you were supposed to approach any argument. At this time, it's becoming very popular, and these translations are hot. So we see more and more of this in the Mutazilite theory. The problem, though, really, is most of what they wrote has been lost, and the surviving picture we get comes from their opponents, because remember we told you the spoiler, they eventually lose the battle, they become heretics, and so most of the historical record about them is not saying nice things. Now, just to give you an idea of how interconnected all of Islamic history is, the best source we have of Mutazilite ideas comes from Yemen, and you say, wow. how on earth did it get from Baghdad to Yemen? Well, Mutazilite ideas became popular with Shiites, especially one branch of the Shiites, a smaller branch called the Zaydis. The Zaydis were a minority that eventually migrated to Yemen, uh, and today they are associated with the group the Houthis in Yemen you may have heard of. Anyway, it's from there that we find one of the best preserved works written by Mutazilites. And so, In a sort of a roundabout way, we get an idea of what's going on in Sunni Baghdad from this Yemeni Shiite group. Okay, now, just another interesting development I want to point out, and this shows how conceptions of the past change. So, much of the polemics that were written against the Mutazilites came from a strong traditionalist conservative backlash that we'll discuss later on. But this really was called the Sunni revival that really happens about the time of the Crusades. And this is when the Abbasid power starts to decline, There's, uh, Spain is being lost slowly to the Christians, and then we have the Christian Crusades right in the Holy Land. And so, as often happens in times of crisis, the conservatives gain power. So, what they write about the Mutazilites is intended to be negative, and they talk about how the Mutazilites rely on reason and rationalism and free thinking instead of faith and instead of tradition. And that's meant to be an insult. More than an insult, it's meant to paint them as heretics. Centuries later, though, Western historians start reading this material, and they're seeing the conservatives rail against these rationalists. So now the Mutazilites become heroes to Western modernist thinkers, and this is particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries, the idea that, you know, Islam needs to modernize, they need to adopt Western secular ideas, and suddenly the Mutazilites become darlings. So you can find a lot of articles in journals today with titles like, quote, The Mutazilites, A Lost Opportunity for Islam, quote, that's an actual journal title. But it just shows you how this thing is painted from so many different viewpoints. There's a lot of historical context we've given you, but what are the actual Mu'tazilite's idea? Of course, as I said, they kept the idea of free will. That was very important to them. But beyond that, they believed that the highest duty of all human beings was to use their intellect to learn and understand God. They believed that any sane adult could discover truth using pure reason and rationalism. And that if you did that, if you were objective and honest, you would discover the very same truths that were in God's revelation. You know, truth is truth. They're both talking about the world. Well, this sounds very similar to the enthusiasm for science in Islam, right? There was a the confidence that nothing you could discover through science and observation about the natural world would ever contradict God's true revelation, and they're basing it on a lot of the same ideas. The difference here is we're talking about spiritual truth, and this gets a bit more sensitive. I mean, it's one thing to say there's nothing that you can discover about physics, from observation that is going to contradict God's Word. It's another thing to say, okay, we're going to use pure logic and reason and prove the existence of God, prove that God must be exactly like the Quran says and can't be like the Bible says. Again, a lot of people see this. You shouldn't be messing with these things. Look, God gave us a revelation. He revealed truth to Muhammad. If you could have figured them out by common sense. God wouldn't have done it. Well, what are some real examples of Mutazilite thinking? Well, their number one belief is Tawheed or unity. And by this, they mean the absolute unity, indivisibility of God. If you've listened to any of the episodes of this podcast or you know anything about Islam, you'll say, well, obviously, right? that's the key belief of all Muslims. In fact, that's what Islam is all about. And you're right. The question, though, is how do you apply that to specific examples from the real world? For example, the idea of anthropomorphism, which is a big word, but this means to give something human characteristics. For example, uh, Mickey Mouse is an anthropomorphic mouse. Obviously, he's not a real mouse. I mean, he looks more like a person than a mouse. In the Quran there are definite references to God's body parts. Specifically in the Quran is mentioned his eye, his hand, his face, even God's shin is mentioned specifically in the Quran. So the question is, does God actually have body parts? Does God actually have eyes, hands, and if he does what's the nature of those? Does he have retina and optical nerves and all of that? Now, this, again, is a question a normal person is not going to ask. This is the kind of question if you ask in church, right? Your father probably tells you to just, you know, be quiet and pay attention to the the priest. But who would ask these sort of questions? This is someone who is in a debate, and particularly someone who's trying to attack your idea of a single, uniform, indivisible God. If you start off by saying that's what makes us unique as Muslims, how we're different from all you other religions, then some smart guy is going to say, well, in your Quran, it talks about God's eye. And we know you do a lot of science on the eye. So does God's eye have a lens? Does it have an optic nerve? And they're going to essentially show God having all these different body parts, and therefore, he's not uniform. Well, the obvious answer here would seem to be that these are metaphors. These are ways to help us understand God, and they're not to be taken literally. You would think that would get you out of it. And honestly, that's what a preacher would say. If you went up to the imam in the mosque and asked him this question, that's probably what he's going to tell you. But again, if we're dealing with a debate with some, you know, really slick debaters here, this can get you into another problem. Because remember that in Islam, we believe that the Qur'an is the exact word of God. It's not just inspired like the Christian scriptures, the gospel, quote, according to Matthew. It's not like that. This is the exact words of God. So, if we say that something's a metaphor, and you're not supposed to take it literally, well, couldn't we apply the same to everything in there? And therefore, you're not much different than us. Well, again, most people would avoid this question by saying it's one of these things you just can't explain in human terms. God doesn't have an eye, but it's meant to convey something to you that God is watching you. But remember, Mutazilites don't do that. They don't want to assign anything to the fuzzy black box. So they have to examine this in logic. So the way that the Mu'tazilites get around the literalism problem is they develop a very complex system that determines how to read each verse of the Quran. And of course, their idea was any person who understands rationalism and logic would do this correctly. The real biggie, though, and this is the one that actually got people sent to jail and would really lead to the fall of the Mutazilites, is a question that might seem kind of obscure to us, and that is whether the Quran was created or not. Now, here again, this is an example, I think, if you read philosophy books, is you get this discussion taken out of context, you get a very philosophical viewpoint, you get a contrast of the different theories, how one theory rose and what the influences were for another theory. You don't get a sense of, well, okay, why would people be thrown in jail for this? What is the big deal? They often leave out the context. So we want to look at this controversy, but we also want to see why this was such a big deal. Now, I will have to admit, if you had put me on a desert island for 50 years with nothing to do but dream up questions all day long, I don't think I ever would have come up with this one. But remember, we've got some really clever Christian debaters out there who know Greek logic and reasoning, and these guys are like trial lawyers. They're going to ask you a bunch of innocent-sounding questions and then back you into a corner until you're stuck. So, what's the problem with this one? And this is another question where no matter which way you answer it, yes or no, you're going to be in trouble. The problem is it comes down to two of Islam's main claims. The first, as we said, is that the Quran is the actual uncorrupted word of God, unlike the Christian scriptures, which have been corrupted. The second is that God is one and indivisible, and that things you Christians are doing are making God divisible. You're giving him a son, you're giving him a Holy Spirit, you're praying to Virgin Mary, you have saints, and so forth. Okay, so the defense lawyer here, the Christian guy, all he has to do is disrupt one of these claims. Show that one of these two points that you rely upon is not necessarily true. If they can do that, right, if they can create a reasonable doubt, then we end up with Islam just being another monotheistic sect, one that makes different claims, has a different prophet, but, you know, has no more logical claim to be correct than Christianity does. Okay, so I think it's important that we understand that context, because this is not just an obscure debate. This becomes very important. So why does the createdness of the Quran become such a key issue in this debate? Uh, Islam has rejected all of the stuff in Christianity that sounds like you're creating other gods. But the biggest one is the idea that God has a son. It says clearly in the Quran that God is not begotten and does not beget. Remember, Islam came along and fixed that. They have a God that's indivisible. Right? Even the most respected human figure in Islam, the Prophet Muhammad, is human. He's not divine. He's not even semi-divine. We don't have saints. We don't have holy men. We don't have healers. Now, just a side note, some of you are probably already saying, but don't all those things eventually end up in folk Islam? Yeah, they do. But again, they're not part of the official doctrine that is being debated here. And most of those are not things that really strict theologians would approve of. But anyway, we're left with one slight problem. And that is that if the Quran is the exact, actual words of God, original, uncorrupted, not modified, directly from God, doesn't that mean that the Quran has holy status? That it's apart from everything else on earth? And remember, I'm a slick debater. I'm essentially backing you into saying that the Qur'an is basically divine in nature and and putting you in a position where it has to be. Otherwise, it's just another scripture like ours, and it's no better than our scriptures. So once you say that, though, concept to say that, well, then, your concept of the Qur'an sounds a lot like our concept of Christ— it's something that is divine, something that is sent down to earth by God to guide people. And in fact, many classical philosophers developed the idea that the equivalent to Christ in the Muslim faith is certainly not Muhammad, but it's the Quran. Now, think about it. When we think what happens in Christianity, is that God sees that mankind has gone off track. And so, he sends his begotten Son, who is a part of him, who is a part of this one God, uh, who is perfect and who has always existed, to guide people on the right track, and they go to heaven. Whoever believes in Christ goes to heaven. Take that same narrative and try and put it in a Muslim context what is playing the role there of the thing that is always with God that is sent down to earth to guide man? It's the Quran. Okay, so to make a long story, not really short, the question of whether the Quran is eternal or it was created at a specific time is going to have pitfalls either way. Okay. On the one hand, if you say that it's eternal and that it has always existed before the coming of the universe, then essentially we've got God and the Quran next to him. We've got two things. We have the Quran essentially being separate, but part of God, hey, is that really different from God and his son? being up there in heaven before the creation of the world, doesn't sound that much different. Okay, so that's a problem. If we say that the Quran, however, is created at a specific period of time, it was created when God spoke it to the prophet Muhammad, well, then we also have a problem, because now we have God creating something which has a divine nature, if you can create stuff that has a divine nature, then we can create saints, we can have a holy piece of wood, a holy hand grenade, we can, we can do all the stuff that the Christians are doing. So either way, you're going to be in trouble. And remember again, the mainstream sort of Sunni answer to this would be, look, you can't explain this using Aristotle's Greek logic. Okay, Aristotle is just a man. His logic isn't perfect. You shouldn't even be getting into this debate in the first place. The Mu'tazilites say no problem. We can we can handle this. Now, incidentally, you might say, well, how could the Quran be eternal? It makes reference to specific people and specific things that were happening in the seventh century A.D. Well, that's not a problem if your God is eternal if he, your god is omniscient if he knows everything that's going to happen then he, he can refer to specific people who haven't even been born but we get into a problem there with predestination so if we have the quran mentioning specific sinners and the quran is eternal then that means those people were predestined to do that okay so you can see however you answer this question you're going to be in trouble so Rather than passing on this, though, the Mutazilites want to take it on. They're not afraid to take on anything. And so, logically to them, they rule in terms of the Quran has to be created. The question is really, which point is most important to you? And for them, the, the dominance of logic is the most important thing for them. Logically, they, they assume God has to precede his word. If you have a word, The person who spoke it has to precede that. Even if it's God's thoughts, God has to precede those. Secondly, they were going up against opponents who had a God in three parts, had a Trinity, had Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all together throughout eternity, but still considered it one God, not three gods. Well, if we had God and the Quran for all eternity, that was going to be a problem. That was too big of a problem. So, the Mutazilites had to come down on the side of the Quran is created. Well, what about the other problems? Well, it was just easier to argue that, yes, the Quran was created, but it was correctly preserved, it was preserved exactly the way God wanted it, and we can show that. We can show the care that was taken in passing it on. We can show all the problems that you Christians have with your scriptures, all the debates, all the conferences you had to have to pick which versions of the scriptures you're gonna include, show that that didn't happen in our case, If you're one of the 99% of the population who isn't getting in a theological debate, or if you're the preacher that has to preach to that population, then the position of an eternal Quran is actually stronger. And this is because it asserts the absolute authority of your scripture. There's a lot of other scriptures circulating. The most important thing is to prove that our Quran is the correct scripture. If you do that, then everything else follows. So, the idea of the Qur'an being this perfect, absolute, we would say divine essence, that is far more important. So, this is essentially the approach that the traditionalists, the preachers, take. They come down on the side of the eternal Qur'an. It is not created because for the population they have to deal with, um, that's important. Think about it. If you're a preacher, right? what is the most important thing is convince people your book is the one they should be following. If everyone says, okay, you're, you're, you're right, we should be reading your book and not the other guy's books, then pretty much you're going to have the, the loyal flock. You, they will be converted. Well, how do you deal with those problems we mentioned? Again, if you're a traditionalist, you're not going to use logic to tackle those issues. You're going to say, This is another one of those mysteries of the faith, something we can't understand. Position you take depends on how important it is to be able to say that your logic explains everything. Now, the interesting thing here is how this plays out. So, in this one issue, may represent better than any other how much things shifted over the centuries. During the time of the Khalif Ma'mun, which is when the House of Wisdom was really at its height and the sponsorship of Muslim intellectuals was at a peak, the Khalif himself actually declared himself a Mutazilite and loved them. He he was the strongest supporter. Well, why would he do that? Or number one, because Ma'mun considered himself a top-right intellectual, but who else was attracted to the Mutazilite position? It was all the intellectuals, the rationalists, the people who were really proud of how smart they were. And this shows you where the focus of the Khalif was. He's going to agree with them. The createdness of the Quran becomes an official state doctrine. You cannot be a Muslim judge unless you swear agreement to this doctrine. Those who didn't were imprisoned and actually tortured. And this is the infamous Mehna, which is also known as the Inquisition. We discussed this in the last episode. But no, we're talking about the first wide-scale doctrinal persecution in Islam, and it was a persecution against traditionalists, against the conservatives, and in favor of the rationalists. The mihna would eventually fail. As as much as Ma'moon loved the Mu'tazalites, he really underestimated the popular appeal of the jurists, of the preachers that the conservatives had over public opinion. And essentially to keep, keep order in this huge empire, you needed to keep the public under control. Particularly, he underestimated the appeal of the conservative jurist Ibn Hanbal, Ibn Hanbal becomes, I would say the martyr, but he doesn't actually die. But he becomes the hero of the mihna. He is tortured. He refuses to accept the createdness of the Quran. He's eventually let go. And he really founds what becomes the most conservative school of Islamic law, even to this day. Well, after 15 years of the mihna, the Caliph al mutawakkil would end it. And eventually, the doctrine of the uncreated Quran, the eternal Quran, would become official doctrine, and the Mutazilites would be labeled as heretics. Well, despite all that, Kalam does continue. It even continues to this day. You can study the science of Kalam. But the really extreme rationalism of the Mutazilites, the idea that we can argue every single point in Islam based on pure logic, that really would die away. So the kalam that will come to replace the Mutazilites, particularly the Ashari view, which becomes the main one, accepts a lot of logic, but also does accept the mainstream view that there are some things that are articles of faith that you just can't prove with human logic. So the idea of the Quran being uncreated, but not a separate divinity. It's just one of these things that, that we can't completely wrap our heads around, but it's truth. The idea of free will and predestination both existing is something, again, we can't define it, we can't completely understand it, but it's the way the world really works. But I hope we've given you an idea of what this reflects about the intellectual climate of this empire. Uh, Despite the messiness of the mihna, we're still talking about an empire that felt comfortable enough to invite in the top intellectuals from other religions and debate them. Although we have a lot of different strands of intellectual activity, we have hadith, Islamic law, science, theology, psychology, and so forth, they do clash at times but they continue to exist in a, in a dynamic environment, and this is one of the great intellectual venues really throughout history. And that's why we call this the Abbasid Golden Age. And hopefully you go back, look at the website, look at the timeline, and see how these things come together. But thanks so much for your kind attention, your kind comments. We look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thank you very much. Shukran Jazilin wa wa salaam.